The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. Matthew, in the ninth chapter, reading from verse 14 to verse 17. From verse 14 to verse 17, in the ninth chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast oft, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. No man putteth a piece of new cloth unto an old garment, for that which is put in to fill it up taketh from the garment, and the rent is made worse. Neither do men put new wine into old bottles, else the bottles break, and the wine runneth out, and the bottles perish. But they put new wine into new bottles, and both are preserved. Now, uh, those who come here constantly and regularly will realize that we are continuing a number of studies in this ninth chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. Each of these incidents follows upon the previous one. And I'm calling attention to them because here, it seems to me, and as I'm trying to show, we have a series of incidents which can give us very vital and essential teaching and instruction with regard to the most urgent problem confronting everybody who's alive in this world at this moment, and that is how to become a Christian. I say that that is the most urgent and the most important question that anybody can consider at a time such as this. I needn't take your time any, again in elaborating that the whole uncertainty of life, we know not what the morrow will bring forth, should surely compel all thinking people to ask certain fundamental questions. What is life? What's its object? What's its purpose? What's it all meant to lead to? What's death? What happens after death, if anything? These are the questions, surely, that any thinking person should be pondering with a new seriousness and, as I say, a new urgency at a terribly cruel time such as this. And that is why I say I'm calling attention to these incidents one after another. There is only one hope, and that is that we be reconciled to God, that all is well between us and God, for we are all under God, we are all in the hands of God, and we shall all have to stand before God and give an account of our stewardship of the most precious gift that he's ever given to mankind, namely the soul that is within us. And therefore there is nothing more important, I say, than to know how exactly we approach the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone can bring us to God and reconcile us to him. How can we come to know him? How is he to be approached? Or, if you like it more generally, the problem before us is, what is this Christianity? What is this message? What does it mean exactly?
to be a Christian. Now, we've been looking at these incidents, and we've seen something of their teaching. There are a series of different incidents, which on the surface appear to be quite different from one another. And yet we've seen up to date that all of them ultimately come to exactly the same thing. There are certain initial misconceptions with regard to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, with regard to his teaching, with regard to what is meant, in other words, by Christianity and the Christian faith. And it's extraordinary how these follow one upon another. The first incident was that where four men brought a friend of theirs who'd been, who was paralyzed. They carried him on a mattress. They'd heard of Christ, and in their utter despair, they said, we must, must take him to him. If, if anybody can do anything, this is the only one. But they found a great crowd. Nevertheless, they were so insistent upon this. They climbed up, tore a hole in the roof, let the man down before our Lord, and our Lord dealt with him. And the man went away blessed. And the second incident was the call of Matthew the publican. He wasn't seeking. He was just doing his work, sitting at the receipt of custom with his books, collecting the taxes. Suddenly, our Lord addresses, addresses him and says, follow me. And he arose and followed him. Got the same blessing exactly. Then last Sunday night, you remember, we were dealing with this difficulty that seemed to arise in the minds of the Pharisees and others. Our Lord went into Matthew's house at his request and invitation to have a meal, and there were a number of other publicans invited, friends of Matthew, and other publicans came, and sinners, open, flagrant sinners. And when the Pharisees saw this, they were amazed, and they said, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? And our Lord, you remember, turned upon them, and gave that great reply that we were considering together. They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. And finally I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Same thing again, but the approach was somewhat different. Well, now we go on to yet another incident this evening, where we are told that the disciples of John the Baptist came to our Lord and put a question to him. And their question was this. Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, frequently? And thy disciples don't fast at all. Why is this? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast, and then follow the two parables that I read just now. Well, now, here I say, the great theme goes on. It's the same matter exactly as I want to show you. But you see, the introduction's different. And this is the point that I'm making. Aren't you impressed as you read a chapter like this, or as indeed you read the whole of the four Gospels, are you not impressed sometimes at the extraordinary number of possible misunderstandings of this gospel. Uh, has that ever struck you? This is what we've got. Here's the Son of God incarnate. He's come to bless. He spent the whole of his time doing good, healing diseases and sicknesses, being kind in various ways. Here he is, the incomparable teacher. And yet so much of his time is taken up in this kind of answering of questions, altercations, arguments, and disputations. 
People come to him one after another. Why is this criticizing? And so much of his time, his brief time here as a teacher on earth, was taken up, and as it appears at first sight to us, waste in dealing with these various people. But it wasn't wasted. His answers are always of the most vital importance. Because men and women are still kept from Christ and Christianity for precisely these same reasons. And there can be no doubt that this is why in the wisdom of God these records were ever written and have been preserved for us. I say that as you read these records, you seem to come to the conclusion that people are ready to take up almost anything to object to our Lord and his teaching. They're prepared to stumble at practically anything and everything that he was or ever said. Now, here we've got an instance of it tonight, which is quite a remarkable one, indeed an extraordinary one. Last time it was the Pharisees who came and uh, had their difficulty and their objection. But this time, it's the disciples of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was the forerunner of our Lord and Savior. He was the one who went before him preparing the way. And when people turned to him and said, are you not the Messiah? He said, no, I'm not. I'm not worthy to undo the legend of his shoes. He is coming after me. I'm simply the one who goes before him. Well now, here is the one, John the Baptist, who said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And yet it's the disciples of John, of all people, those who should have been on his side and understanding it all, they are the very people who come here and put this question, why is it, they say, that we and the Pharisees are constantly observing days of fasting? And your disciples never fast at all. Now, they stumbled at this, and they were annoyed by it. They stumbled at our Lord himself, at his behavior, and obviously at the teaching which he had been giving to his followers. Well, now then, on the surface, I say, this appears to be an entirely different case, doesn't it? And yet, as we come now to examine it, we shall find that fundamentally it is exactly the same as the previous cases. Indeed, this is the great point I'm establishing. That all difficulties with regard to believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and becoming a Christian, all of them ultimately are due to one and the same thing. And that is, some initial misconception or some prejudice with regard to him and his teaching, with regard to what Christianity really is. Now, that's always the trouble. It may start here, there, or anywhere else, but if you follow it along, you'll always find you can track it back to that initial trouble. All these people with their varying questions and their difficulties and their problems they all, I say, arise from this one common thing. They've all got a wrong notion, an erroneous conception as to what this faith and its teaching really are. Now, that's precisely what we've got here. And our Lord deals with it. He always dealt with these questions as he dealt with the Pharisees. So he deals with the disciples of John. He, first of all, gives them a plain, explicit statement and answer. 
and then obviously feeling that this matter was so serious, so important, so vital. He supplemented his plain obvious answer by uttering two parables. And in the two parables, he makes the thing still more abundantly plain and clear. Now, what is his teaching? What does he say? Well, the point, the real essence of the teaching, both in the statement and in the parables, is this. That he and his gospel and his message are entirely new and unique. And utterly unlike everything that the world has ever known before. Now, there is our great fundamental principle. It is because he and what he has come to do and what he's come to say is so different from what people normally think that they get into trouble with respect to it. That was the trouble with these disciples of John the Baptist. I say that is exactly and precisely the whole trouble this evening. Now let's look at this together. Here is, I say, our central principle, our Lord... Uh, deals with it in a very exhaustive manner. I can't hope to do that tonight. I'm going to take, first of all, this explicit statement which he made when he put it like this. Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. Now, what is he teaching? Well, let's be clear about this. He is not merely making some general statement about the advance of knowledge. These, uh, this matter we are dealing with tonight has so often been completely misinterpreted. And people have said, ah, oh, yes, of course, the truth for the 20th century is not the truth of the 19th century or the 18th century. Always new. You must always advance. These disciples of John were old-fashioned traditionalists. And our Lord was always modern, up-to-date. And he is not interested, therefore, today in... Theology that may have been all right at the time of the Protestant Reformation and so on. We want a truth for the truth. That's how this is misinterpreted. Of course, that's completely and entirely wrong, as I must show. Others think that he's just here saying that there's no value in the Old Testament. There are many people who take up that attitude. The Old Testament finished this. Christianity put an end to that. And our Lord was just denouncing the Old Testament here. That's a complete travesty, of course. He never did that. He said that he had not come to destroy the law of the prophets, but to fulfill. No, that's not what he's concerned about. What he's concerned about is the misunderstanding of the teaching both of the Old Testament and the New. This constant prejudice that comes between people and belief in him and the receiving of his blessing. Now, I ask again, haven't you often been amazed and surprised at that as you've re read these four Gospels and their accounts of his earthly life and ministry? Don't you have the feeling, if only I were there and I could really see him, why I'd fall at his feet at once and believe him? But you probably wouldn't. If you don't believe his message now, you wouldn't have believed it then. And you would have refused to do so. You would have stumbled at one of the things that caused these people to stumble. What are they? Well, let's listen to his teaching. This is how our Lord puts it in his reply. He starts off by saying that Christianity is always surprising. 
That's the first postulate. Why do we and the Pharisees fast off, but thy disciples fast not? Surprise. His reply has got it equally clearly. Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? As if to say, you seem to have a wrong notion of uh, who I am and what I am and what I'm doing here. And the whole atmosphere of what I'm doing. Not a chamber of mourning. This is a bridal feast. Surprise. Now this is, I say, a most important point. In our previous incidents, this element of surprise has come out every time. You see, the Pharisees, when they saw him sitting down at meal, at meat with a, a publican, indeed a number of them, and these open, obvious sinners, they said, this is impossible. A religious teacher, a man who claims to have come from God, sitting down with publicans and sinners, they couldn't get over this surprise. Well, here we've got it again. Disciples of John, they said, but look here, you're not keeping the rules, you're not behaving as you should behave. We and the Pharisees and all people who are really religious, we fast oft. And you are disciples don't fast at all. They were amazed at this and surprised at this. Oh, let me emphasize this point. Our Lord was always surprising people. You can't go through these records without coming across it almost on every page and many times on every single page. If ever anybody surprised people in this world, it was the Son of God. The common people were surprised at it, amazed at it. They said, who is this? What is this? This man speaketh with authority, not as the Pharisees and scribes, and yet he's only a carpenter. He's just one of us, really. But well, what is this? Read the accounts. You'll find that wherever he came, he created a stir and a commotion. The last time he went into Jerusalem, the people said, who is this? That was his effect upon the common people. Well, we've already seen it in the case of the Pharisees and scribes. They could not understand him. He was a permanent enigma to them. Indeed, they were annoyed by him because he never seemed to do what they thought he ought to be doing. Up to a point, they thought at first he was going to be right. Then they begin to be shocked by him here and there and everywhere, and they're always in trouble and asking their questions. But it's equally the same with the publicans. They'd always been regarded as outsiders. And they'd always been taught to believe that religion had got nothing for them. Religion was for good people, not for publicans and sinners. And yet they found that when they approached him, he was delighted to receive them. He was known as the friend of publicans and sinners. And they were amazed at it. They'd never had such treatment. Poor women who'd lived a life of sin came and washed his feet. A poor woman with a desperate disease came and touched the hem of his garment. And instead of being accosted or reprimanded or rebuked as they expected, he was always loving and kind and tender with them. And they couldn't understand this. Oh, they were not the only people. The Roman soldiers were equally surprised. Some of them were sent one day to arrest him. They went back to their officers without him. And when their officers asked them, well, where's your prisoner? The only thing they could say is this, never man spake like this man. There was something about him that they couldn't understand. Something extraordinary, something unusual, something amazing. Indeed, let me finish the list by reminding you that even his own disciples were constantly being amazed by him. Here were his own followers, 
They thought they understood. And yet they didn't understand. They were amazed, we are told. Read these accounts and watch for that expression. They were filled with amazement. They and the people said, we have seen strange things today. There was something about him and what he did. Never what they expected, but always something unusual that caused a surprise. And now, the principle I'm establishing is that that is always a characteristic of true Christianity. True Christianity is always surprising. Now, I'm sorry, I've got to use an expression like true Christianity. Why? Well, because there is that which passes as Christianity, which is not Christianity. I'm talking about true Christianity. And uh, the point I'm establishing is that the effect of true Christianity is always surprising and amazing. Look at the, one of the most notable examples. The day of Pentecost at Jerusalem. Here are the people up for the religious feast from all parts of the world. Suddenly they see a handful of ignorant, unlettered, untutored men. Filled with an ecstasy of joy and of happiness, praising God, speaking in different languages which they could all understand. And they looked on in utter astonishment and amazement. Some said these men are full of new wine, they're drunk. But they all joined in saying this, what is this? This new thing, this Christianity, its first effect upon people was to fill them with amazement and astonishment. Surprise. And I could easily show you in the subsequent history of the Christian church throughout the centuries that Christianity, the true Christianity, has always had that effect upon people. Whenever there has been a reformation, or a revival. It's always come in this same surprising and amazing manner. Now, what, what was it that led to the Protestant Reformation? Uh, what happened to Martin Luther? Well, I can tell you. Here was a good young man. Destined for the church. Anxious to be a priest. Whose main concern was to live a godly life. And to be a teacher of the scriptures. And so, he gives up wonderful prospects. And he becomes a monk, and there he is in his cell, studying, fasting, sweating, praying. What's he trying to do? Well, he's trying to discover whether his sins are forgiven or not. He's trying to know God, and to know that all is well with his soul. He lived for that. It was the great quest of his life, and he'd been at it for years. Then suddenly, and amazingly and astonishingly, through reading the scriptures themselves of which he was a teacher and a professor, he suddenly made the startling discovery that he'd been all wrong and that his whole approach was entirely fallacious. That that was not the way to be saved and to know God and to know your sins forgiven. Justification by faith only. And he nearly went mad. And it exploded into the Protestant Reformation. He was amazed. He stumbled across it. And it was so absolutely different from all he'd ever thought and all he'd ever been taught and everybody before him. He never got over his amazement. That was the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And my dear friends, it's been the same ever since. This burst upon the world as a new truth. 
In the bosom of the church. Everybody was amazed. Watch this, they say. Some hated it and were infuriated. Others, thank God for it. But you see, the effect upon all was surprise, amazement, and astonishment. Oh, I could keep you with endless illustrations. Exactly the same thing happened in the 18th century to people like George Whitfield and John Wesley. John Wesley has given us that long account of it in his journals. Go and read it. He was again a good, godly young man. Always religious, brought up in a religious home. His father a clergyman, an exceptionally godly mother. His great ambition in life was to know God and to serve him and to know that all was well between him and God. He gave up his fellowship in his college at Oxford, sacrificed wonderful prospects, crossed the Atlantic to preach to pagans in Georgia and America. What's he doing? Trying to save his soul. This is the way. He'd always been brought up in it. This was it. And then you remember what happened to him in the same way. Suddenly he discovers it's all wrong. And that this is something that God gives us. The free grace of God. And again he was filled with amazement and astonishment. The same with Whitfield and all. And so you had your great evangelical awakening. Every revival, every reformation has always had this effect. People had gone on in the humdrum manner, going to their church now and again, thinking they were good Christian people. Suddenly the Holy Ghost comes down. And the place is, as it were, turned upside down. And the power of the Spirit comes. And people say, what's this? And then they begin to ask questions and ask themselves, have we ever been Christians at all? Is this Christianity? We never knew it like this before. Now that's always the effect. Exactly the effect that it had here, you see, on the disciples of John the Baptist. Now then, why does Christianity always come like this as a surprise? Here's the question. Why does it come in this way to us? And there's only one answer to the question. People are always surprised when they really discover what it is. For the one and uh, only reason that uh, they thought that they knew what it was. That's the trouble. You see, these disciples of John, they said, now we know what religion is. And this man claims to be a religious leader. Well, therefore, if he is a religious leader, why doesn't he make his disciples fast? They knew what religion was, and he doesn't tally with that. Therefore, he's wrong. It's still like that. People are surprised when they really discover what this is. Well, because they always thought they knew what it was. And I'm quite sure that there are many such people in this congregation at this moment. We all think we know what Christianity is, don't we? That's why we all are so ready to talk about it. That's why we're all so ready to express our opinions about it. That's why we're all so ready to argue about it. There's not a person here who hasn't argued many times about Christianity, haven't you? You've said, I think it's this, and you've engaged in argument and disputation. But my dear friend, the question is, do you know what it is? We all think we do. We all start off feeling we know exactly what it is, and then when we come up against the thing itself, we say, but that isn't right, that isn't it. We think we know. And the whole time the trouble is, as we see in this incident, that we've been all together and entirely wrong. I want to put this like this. If this Christian message has not come to us as a surprise, we've never known it. If you're not amazed at the content of this message, I say you don't know it at all. I want to put it very plainly. Christianity, the essential message, is a staggering truth. 
I'll go further. It is a shocking truth to the natural men. But above everybody else, it is a shocking truth to the good religious men. These were religious people, remember. The Pharisees and scribes, the disciples of John the Baptist. Here are religious men, good religious men. Yet Christ shocks them. He staggers them. And as I've been showing you by my instances, that is what he always does. He shocked Martin Luther. He staggered John Wesley. It's always had this effect. Who were the people who persecuted Martin Luther most of all? Was it the people out in the world who didn't believe? Not at all. Martin Luther got his main persecution from the Roman Catholic Church. From religious people. Who were the people who persecuted Whitfield and the Wesleys most? Was it the rabble? They did up to a point, but they did it as a joke. The people who really persecuted them were, well, I'm just repeating history, the bishops of the Church of England, to which they belonged as clergymen. Their main persecution came from good religious people. Why? Well, because these men seemed to be preaching something that was wrong. They said, this is wrong, this is impossible. This is staggering, this is shocking. This really isn't decent. That's always been the trouble. And therefore I must put it in this form of a question once more. Have you been as shocked and amazed at this message? Has it come as a surprise to you? Shaking you. Making you feel that all you've thought and known is absolutely wrong. I say if it hasn't, you've never met it. This was invariably the effect of our Lord and his teaching upon good religious people in his own day and generation. It's continued to be ever since in the history of the church. Very well, let's go on from that. There's our first point, but take a second. Why does it have this effect? Well, because as our Lord says, it is something which is unique. Now our Lord's picture puts that very clearly, doesn't it? You see, here they are. They're arguing from the basis of their idea of religion and what has always been done in religious circles and in the realm of religion. And our Lord says, yes. Do you expect people at a bridal feast, a marriage feast, do you expect them to mourn? Well, how utterly irrelevant it seems to be. We are discussing religion. And he's talking about a marriage feast. It's altogether different. Yeah, well, that's exactly the point he's establishing, that he and his message are absolutely unique. In other words, he's saying this, that what he is and what he has to give is not in series with anything else, that it's entirely unlike everything else, that this is something that comes in, as it were, when we don't expect it and entirely different from what we had anticipated. Now, that's the great point that he establishes here. In other words, for me to put it in a more modern form, we can put it like this. Christianity is not something that you can add to anything else. There are many people doing that. That's why I think things are as they are today. I've known many people who thought of Christianity just like this when I was a boy. I suppose they were in the majority then, but they were quite honest and they were quite sincere. Their idea of Christianity was this, liberalism with a kind of religious tincture upon it. 
But then there were others to whom Christianity was conservatism, with a religious tincture upon it. And since then there have been large numbers to whom Christianity is nothing but socialism, with a kind of religious terminology. That's their notion of Christianity. You see, you start out with your basic belief, whatever it is, philosophical, political, or anything else, and then you borrow these Christian terms. That's Christ, he just gives... Uh, a religious air, a religious covering, as it were, to what you yourself believe. You add it on. Or to put it in another way, their notion of it is that it's something that you can mix with what you've already got. Now, that was the whole trouble with these disciples of John. Here they were, religious men, disciples of John the Baptist, a religious leader, a man who'd baptized so many thousands out there in the wilderness. Here they are, the religious people. Here comes this new teacher. Well, now then, they say, of course, uh, he's one of us, he belongs to us, and they thought they of everybody would understand this, and they'd approve most of all and would be most pleased by it. But he shocks them, he amazes them. And he tells them why he does so. He says, what I've got is not to be mixed with what you've got. No, no, he says, you've got to realize that my teaching is something absolutely unique in and of itself. It's complete in and of itself. It's not an addition to. It is itself everything. It's exclusive. It is intolerant in that sense. It is the only teaching. And I am the one and only Messiah. I am the light of the world. Now that's his answer. He speaks authoritatively. And he puts what he is and what he's got to give in an entirely new setting which was completely strange to these people and to their whole outlook and all their thinking. Now that leads me to the last question, which is this one. Why is it that the uniqueness of the Christian message surprises us in this way? You see the steps? It does surprise, it shocks. He says it does so because of its uniqueness. Well, what is there about it? What is this uniqueness? That always amazes people like this and pulls them up full of surprise and astonishment. Or in other words, what are the essential characteristics of this Christian message that put it in a category on its own and make it such that it requires no help, no addition, no admixture with anything else? What is it? And our Lord answers the question not only simply and plainly but in a very glorious and in a very wonderful manner. The first characteristic, he says, of his whole teaching and his gospel and his salvation is this. That it is something which is utterly and entirely dependent upon him himself. Notice how he puts it. They are interested in religious teaching. Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? That's in reply to the question, why do we and the Pharisees fast off and thy disciples fast not? His answer is to talk about a bridegroom. Who's the bridegroom? He himself. Immediately, you see, he shows them that their thinking is wrong. Now, they thought of him as just one of a number of religious teachers. They'd heard of them, the prophets and the past and so on. They'd followed John the Baptist, the most amazing of them all, the last of the great prophets. Here comes another teacher. Oh, here's just another one again. But he immediately dismisses that. He himself is what matters. The bridegroom. He calls attention to his person. Now this is the first essential about us understanding this Christian message. 
And this is what puts it into a category entirely on its own. With all other teachings, the teacher is not essential. You could have Mohammedanism without Mohammed. You could have Buddhism without Buddha. You could have Confucianism without Confucius. This is the man who happened to popularize it, but the teaching is a man-made teaching, and anybody might have propounded it. It's the teaching that matters. The person doesn't save you. It's the teaching that saves you. Not so here. The thing that separates this from everything else is that it is the teacher, the person himself, who matters above and beyond everything else, the bridegroom. He says, you don't understand it. Your whole thinking is wrong. You don't realize that I'm the bridegroom. That's why they're happy. That's why they're not fasting. That's why they're not mourning. I am with them. The bridegroom is here present. He's calling attention to his person. And if ever that were necessary, it is essential at the present time. People are talking about Christianity, the Christian attitude towards this, that, and the other. They're turning it into a teaching and a philosophy. And the blessed person himself is not in it at all. And yet there is no Christianity without him. Don't you see how he puts it here? Christianity is a relationship to a person. While they are arguing with him about teachings, he says, Look here, how can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The children of the bride chamber are the friends who come and are invited to the marriage and to the feast. That's his picture. What makes them what they are? Is it that they hold a certain teaching or that they've done certain things? Not at all. They're the friends of the bridegroom. They're related to the person. Here's the thing to start with. Everything is controlled by him himself. What makes a man a Christian? There's only one answer. It is his relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be a good man, you can be the best man in the world, but if you bear no direct relationship to this Jesus Christ, this bridegroom, you're not a Christian. You can be good, you can be religious, you can be anything you like, but the vital question is, what is your relationship to this bridegroom? You see, he says it's central, it's vital. He says, while I'm here, they can't be unhappy and they can't mourn. When I'm taken away, they will mourn. What determines their life? I do. It is their relationship to me that governs everything else. Nothing else governs it. They're in this special relationship to me. And therefore, their state and condition is entirely determined by me, by what I am, and by what happens to me. Here's the heart of Christianity, my friends. The whole message of Christianity is to say, that God hath visited and redeemed his people in the person of his only begotten son, the bridegroom, this outstanding person. Who is he? Well, look at him here. Listen to his speech. Look at his knowledge. Here he is forecasting his own death. He says the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then they shall fast. They will mourn then. They'll be unhappy then. The day is coming when I, the bridegroom, am going to be taken from them. Now here is what he's calling attention to himself, to his own person. Who is this person who can speak like this? Who is this that arrogates to himself this special position and calls himself the bridegroom, this special person? And all people are to be influenced by him and by their relationship to him. 
There is the first and the most essential truth about this Christian message. It is he himself that counts and matters supremely. If you regard him as just a man, the best man, if you like, that the world has ever known, and the greatest religious teacher and no more, you're not a Christian. He's the bridegroom. He's the one who has come down amongst us. Here is the incarnation. Here is the two natures in one person. Here is the uniqueness of this Son of God who knows and who knows what he's come to do. The bridegroom, my friend, are you related to him? Is your life determined by him this evening? If not, you're not a Christian. Is your happiness or your misery determined by your relationship to him? He says it must be if you're a Christian. He controls everything. Here then is the first and fundamental test. What is our relationship to him? Is he everything to me? Is he my all in all? Is he Alpha and Omega? Do I say that I have nothing apart from him? Do I say that my salvation is in him? That Christianity is Christ? The bridegroom? If not, I say I'm not a Christian. I'm stumbling as these people did. But here then is the thing with which we must start. The second point he makes is this. That the uniqueness and the staggering and surprising element in this teaching, in this salvation is that he makes it quite plain and clear to us that we become Christians and have our Christian joy not at all as the result of our own activities. See, that's what amazed and shocked these people. Look here, they said, your disciples are not fasting at all. How can they be possibly religious? How can they be good? How can they please God? They're not fasting as they ought. In other words, you see, what made you religious, according to these people, was your observance of the rules and regulations. Your living of the good life. They fasted oft. They'd been taught to fast frequently. And they thought the more regularly you observed your fast days, the better you were, the nearer to God and the more pleasing to God. Religion is something that you do yourself. And you make yourself a Christian by observing the rights and the rules and the regulations of the church. There are thousands of people like that in the church tonight. They verily believe that what makes them Christian is this, that they get up early in the morning to go to early morning fasting communion. That's the thing. If you don't do that, you're a poor Christian. But if you do that, then you must be a real Christian. And they observe Lent and days and times and seasons and are governed by rules and regulations. And as you observe them, you're making yourself a Christian. That was the attitude. And to such people, the teaching of our blessed Lord and Savior was nothing but shocking and staggering. It seemed to be terribly wrong, and they rebuke him for it. But you see, he answers by saying, he says, that, that's, not, that's not Christianity at all. He says, what makes a man a Christian is not that he's been fasting and sweating and praying and doing good and trying thus to make himself a Christian. No, no, he says, what makes a man a Christian is that he's received an invitation to a wedding breakfast. He's done nothing. He just gets an invitation. Come to the bridal feast. 
It's just his relationship to the bridegroom, that he's a friend of the bridegroom. And here's the great occasion, and the bridegroom has invited him, and he's gone to the feast. That's Christianity, he says. Now, it's not surprising that these people were shocked, is it? When you've spent the whole of your lifetime thinking that you make yourself a Christian because you're a good man and by your good living and by your fasting and observance of rules and regulations and are suddenly told, oh, that's quite irrelevant, doesn't matter at all. You just receive the invitation and accept it. And you're in, you're in the feast, you're a Christian. Now, do you see why I read to you that third chapter of Paul's epistle to the Philippians at the beginning? That's exactly the thing that staggered him and shocked him and threw him on his back on the road to Damascus. This Hebrew of the Hebrews, of the stock of Benjamin, this authority on the law, this expert in all the minutiae and the details of religion and religiosity, this Pharisee of the Pharisees, this man who excelled everybody in his zeal for God, as he thought, and persecuting the Christian church, and who relied upon his goodness, his righteousness that he'd thus amassed to put him right with God. And suddenly he is told that it's all done. No better than a manure heap. What a shock. And that you become a Christian by just saying, Who art thou, Lord, and what wilt thou have me to do? No more. Now I say that that's the most staggering, shocking thing a man can ever hear. But that's Christianity. Not your fasting, not your goodness. Not your protests, not your Christian ideas, your Christian views. That's never made anybody a Christian. It never will. It's the greatest hindrance. It's the chiefest obstacle. What is it? Well, here it is. It's the free grace of God. The gift of God. The invitation of God. To come. To feast. To enjoy. There's the second thing. It starts with him. The bridegroom counts above everything. Then you see that second step. Nothing that we do. And then lastly, its greatest, its chiefest characteristic is its joy. Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with him? He said, are you surprised that these fellows of mine are so happy? Why are you surprised at that? Why are you so shocked that my disciples don't go about the world with long faces, always fasting and sweating and looking miserable and unhappy? Why are you shocked at that? What's the matter with you? He says your whole conception is wrong. He says we're in a wedding feast. You haven't got this. The chiefest characteristic, he says, of my way and of my salvation is joy. But people are always amazed at that. Why? Well, you see, we've always thought, haven't we? We've all done this. We're all like these disciples of John by nature. We've always thought that religion is that which makes a man unhappy. What is religion? Oh, I'll tell you what religion is. Religion is that which tells you not to do various things. Religion is that which always tells you to deny yourself, to give up things, to stop doing things you like, and to start doing things you don't like. What's religion? It means... Living, it means scorning delights, 
and living laborious days. Religion makes a man miserable. Why? Well, because it means you're always striving, you're always straining, and yet you're always a failure. It means you're filled with doubts, filled with lack of understanding. You've got vague hopes, and then your fears come and drown your hopes. That's religion. A man trying to make himself a Christian and trying to be right with God. His religion is a break upon his life. Stands between him and all he wants. That's how people think of religion. People, you see, who are normally full of laughter and smiles and cheering, they put on, as it were, a fresh face and go to church on Sunday morning. Then they forget it as soon as they can and go to the sherry party and all is happy and well again. But you see, there was that interlude at the hour while they were in the church, desperately serious. And it's a great effort sometimes. But that's religion. This very serious thing that says no for the time being. And then you forget it and you let yourself go. That's the idea. Morality, of course, is exactly the same. A moral man may be a very good man, but you've never met a joyous man who's just a moralist. He can't be. It's impossible. The standard is so high. He's so aware of his failures and of his own weakness. Religion as such can't give joy. Morality can't give joy. But here is something that gives joy. Why? Well, he says it's coming to a banquet. It's coming to a great wedding breakfast. It's coming to a great feast. Well, why should there be joy about it? Well, for this reason. As I say, you've done nothing at all. You haven't paid for a ticket. You haven't had to pay a great price. You get an invitation from your friend. Come to my marriage feast. Come for nothing. And all you've got to do is to turn up and go into the feast. That's why he talks about the joy of these people in the presence of the bridegroom. Why is Christianity a religion of joy? Well, because, as I've already said, it is the free gift of God's grace. It doesn't ask us to give anything, to make any contribution. It gives it all. We are simply invited and we sit down and we begin to partake. Why is this a religion of joy? Well, he answers the question. The presence of the bridegroom. He's such a person, you can't possibly be miserable in his presence. His very appearance, his whole demeanor, everything he's got to say, his character, his kindness. Who can be miserable in the presence of such a person? The bridegroom. Have you ever come near him, my friend? If ever you've come near the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll know something of this joy. You can't be mournful in his presence. You must praise him, the glory, the wonder of his person. And then when you begin to think of what he's done for us, how he left the courts of heaven and humbled himself and became a man for us, that we might be delivered out of the misery of sin and its shame and all its confusion, he came and not only lived and taught, but he died that we might have this. Think of what he's done. Can you still be sad and unhappy? Are you still thinking of yourself and your own efforts and your fasting? No, no, this is wonderful good news. And then think of what he gives you so freely. What he places before you when you come to the feast and accept his invitation. Free pardon of all your sins. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though you've sinned until the moment you entered this building and have lived an evil life, it doesn't matter. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. Your sins are blotted out now 
You don't have to wait and propose this or that. Believe on him and you're forgiven now, here and now, without anything. Just as you are. That's what he gives you. Do you feel like mourning? Is this a time for putting on sackcloth and ashes? Aren't you on your feet shouting? He's offering it to you for nothing. Because he's died, he offers you free pardon and forgiveness. What else? A new life. A new beginning. A new start. He's invited you to the feast. You come, you say, I'm in rags, I'm unworthy, it's all right, he says. Put the robe on him. He'll clothe you with his own righteousness. And you can sit down with the saints without feeling ashamed at the royal banquet of the Son of God, the bridegroom, the husband of the church and his people. And he'll fill you with a new power that you've never understood before and never experienced before. Oh, let me end by putting it like this. This is his description. You become the friends of the bridegroom. A friend of the Son of God. Yea, more, you become his brother. He's the firstborn amongst many brethren. You become a child of God. You become adopted into the family of God. You become a member of the household of God. You become an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. Yes, Christianity. What you said, you mean to say that a man who may have come in off the street tonight who's never thought about Christ or God or his soul or Christianity ever in his life, do you mean to say he can come in and begin to enjoy that now with a man who's striven throughout the long life that he's lived? That's precisely what it is. And if you're not amazed at it, you don't see it. No man ever thought it was like this. It's utterly opposed to all we've ever thought. It's utterly opposed to all religions and all moralities and philosophies. It is unique and it's amazing and surprising. But oh, the glory of it all. And oh, the joy that it should lead to. My dear friend, are you rejoicing in Christ Jesus? Did you hear Paul addressing those Philippians? Rejoice in the Lord always, he says. And again I say, rejoice. Again he repeats it. Rejoice evermore. Go on rejoicing. What else can you do? My dear friend, do you realize that the Son of God loved you and died for you, came from heaven to earth to deliver you? Do you believe that? Do you know your sins are forgiven? Well, I say, if you do, you must be filled with rejoicing in the presence of the bridegroom and all that he has to give you. That's Christianity. That's the message of salvation. And none other. And the test of it is, I say, whether we believe it or not, whether we know this blessed joy. Did you agree with those words of Robert Robinson that we sang just now? But thy rich, thy free redemption, dark through brightness all along, Thought is poor and poor expression. Who dare sing the wondrous song? Brightness of the Father's glory. Shall thy praise unuttered lie? Break my soul. Such guilty silence. Sing the Lord who came to die. Praise my soul, 
the king of heaven, to his feet thy tribute bring. Ransom, healed, restored, forgiven, who like thee his praise should sing. Praise, praise, praise the everlasting Oh, that I could forever sit like Mary at the Master's feet. Be this my chiefest joy. My hope, my fear, my delight be this. Forever at the Master's feet to sit, to hear the bridegroom's voice. Have you ever heard it? Do you know something of a joy unspeakable and full of glory? My dear friends, I ask you the question in the midst of the solemnity of these tremendous days in which we are living. Which is our idea of this? Is it that of the disciples of John? Is your religion against the grain? Is it something you have to force yourself to? Is it a task? Is it something that you're engaged in simply because you're afraid of hell? Or do you know the bridegroom? Have you heard his voice? Are you a friend of him? Do you realize that it's entirely of his grace and love and goodness that he's invited you into the feast? Have you heard the invitation? Have you accepted it? And are you rejoicing in Christ Jesus? God forbid that we should stumble and be upset and annoyed at the central, the chiefest glory of this great and glorious salvation.